Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember... I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. Hello and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Kasif Sheikh, co-founder and president of Pillars Fund. Pillars Fund is a national nonprofit that amplifies the leadership, narratives, and talents of Muslims in the U.S. to advance opportunity and justice for all. Since its inception in 2010, Pillars has distributed more than $6 million in grants to Muslim organizations and leaders who are advancing social good. Most recently, Pillars helped to support a landmark study on Muslim characters in movies, which, as you can imagine, proves that Hollywood needs to do more to better represent and involve Muslims. Along with that study, Pillars released a blueprint for how to fix the film industry's portrayal of Muslims and a fellowship to support Muslim artists. I asked Kashif about the other types of people and projects they support. Well, we really support a, a wide array of organizations and, and leaders and, you know, everything from health clinics that are working, um, you know, that have Muslim leadership to civil rights organizations. You know, one of the things that really became interesting to me as I started to understand the landscape of Muslim communities in the U.S. was post 9-11, you sort of had this new wave of organizations. I think pre 9-11, you had these organizations. There's few and far between. But pre 9-11, it really felt like a lot of the resources in the communities were going towards um, local masjids or, or Islamic schools. And post 9-11, you know, given the political moment, you really started to see this new crop of leaders and organizations and civic organizations really pop up. And um, they've just been doing phenomenal work. And, and, and so to be able to support a wide range of people and Muslim leaders in the U.S. has been uh, such a dream. Yeah. Has that been in response to the negative stereotypes, negative media that we've gotten over the last 20 years? And, and has there been more activity in the last, say, five since the Trump ban? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think we were in reaction to anything. I think one thing that we've always really tried to do at Pillars is really be proactive and tell the story of Muslims in in the United States uh, and lift up Muslim communities and really kind of share the the diversity, the joy, the incredible work that our community has been engaged in for so, so long. And so I, I don't think it was necessarily in reaction to anything because we've tried so hard to not just be reactive but, you know, what has happened in the last five years since Trump, I do think that it's been another kind of um, uptick in motivation for young activists and Muslim 
leaders to kind of really take on even bigger challenges. Because, you know, when you look at the political moment uh, after 9-11 and then after the Trump election, I mean, they're both characterized by this anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, racial, racist, uh, white supremacist kind of mindset. Um, but it's different. And, and I think that the Trump era was incredibly scary for a lot of people, obviously for Muslims, particularly because, you know, the, the then president was literally campaigning and then presided over this policy that was trying to keep Muslims out of the U.S. And so he wasn't even trying to hide that fact. And so, yeah, you have seen, um, you know, this uptick in leaders. But I would also say that that's uh, partly a function of, you know, Muslim communities in the U.S. being younger. And so you're seeing more and more young people get really active and do this work because there's also more organizations. There's more ways to make a living. Uh, it's more acceptable to do a lot of this work. And so I, I think the landscape today versus what it was even 20 years ago, is just dramatically different. Oh, no doubt. I, I just also read on the website that Mackenzie Scott and Dan Jewett, uh, gave you a huge donation you want to or, or grant can you t- talk about that yeah i mean it was incredibly generous and kind and i think that you know i i think the thing that i'm most proud of is you know before this latest round of grants if you look at their giving you know uh, muslims weren't prominently factored into it and you know i think it kind of shows a sign of the times is that they recognize that if they're going to be supporting racial justice movements in the u.s um, not having Muslim organizations as a part of that is just ill-conceived and it's not a good idea. And so I, I give a lot of credit to uh, Mackenzie and her family for uh, centering Muslim voices in this latest round of grants. Obviously, we've been incredibly fortunate to be one of the recipients, but we're not the only recipients, which I think to me is the more exciting part of this is that it's so difficult to be a person of color or a, a community of color in the U.S. because you, it's so easy to be tokenized. And I think the thing that just got me most excited about that grant is two things. One, obviously, it's transformational for our work. And I think we're very, very excited about, you know, what it means for the organization, but also that, you know, Muslims are really on their radar. And, you know, I'm very optimistic that even more organizations, you know, as they continue this quest to give out a significant amount of money will be on their radar. And, and we will do everything we can to make sure that our partners and, and our friends and the people doing incredible work that we continue to center Muslim voices and, and share with their team all the incredible work that our communities are doing. Um, I want to talk about uh, this landmark study that you guys supported about the prevalence and portrayal of Muslim characters on the screen. Can you talk a little bit about that report or study? Yeah, absolutely. I am so excited about this report. There's so much to get into um, and so many people to thank. You know, I, I think that the report really came out of this, you know, like I have to give a lot of credit to the actor Riz Ahmed, who um, has, has been really a champion and put his celebrity status and profile in front of, you know, like in, in, in front of so many people to really kind of champion these causes and uh, the, the project came about because of a speech that he gave at this event um, that we sort of helped kind of gather some talking points to. And he kind of realized that there wasn't a lot of hard data around Muslim representation. There was a lot of anecdotal data, amazing anecdotal data, a great report called Huck in Hollywood by our dear friend, Meita Al-Hassan, who, you know, did this work with the Pop Culture Collaborative a couple of years ago, I'd highly recommend. You had Jack Shaheen's work of Real Bad Arabs. And so obviously there had been some stuff out there, but not anything sort of recent. 
um, and and really like quantitative that looked at you know what the the data was really showing about Muslim representation. And so we partnered with the Ford Foundation um, and the University of Southern California Annenberg Center, who sort of specializes in this type of research. And, you know, it's been a, a labor of love, almost two years worth of work. And the, the results were released uh, two or three weeks ago or so. And, and they really speak for themselves. I mean, it, it, you know, there's a second part of the study that's coming out that's going to be looking at uh, TV and uh, streaming. But the first part of the study was just movies uh, in the top 200 movies in the last three or four years in uh, New Zealand, the U.S., the U.K. and Australia. And the results were, you know, what we expected, but also just very disheartening. You know, I, I think the results were incredibly disheartening. And I think a lot of people, you know, I think for us, when, when we were doing this re- uh, research, we knew that the data coming back, you know, you don't have to, you know, being Muslim in America, uh, you know that your representation and, and your portrayals in popular culture have never been particularly good. Right. So it's not like we were, you know, expecting, you know, anything positive. But I do think that there was, you know, a bit of a surprise as to just how intense the erasure was of Muslims in popular culture. Um, you know, the fact that there was no Muslims in any animated films in the last couple of years. You know, the fact that, you know, black Muslims or uh, Muslim women were c- almost completely excluded from portrayals. The fact that you had so many, you know, the majority of uh, Muslims, you know, who were on film, uh, th- th- their uh proximity to violence was incredibly high. So, you know, I, I think that it, it told us a lot of what we needed to hear. But I think the most important part of that study was that, you know, for better or worse, people react really well to data. And so now yeah, having right. this data to be able to put in front of, you know, Hollywood studios and say, this is a real problem. I think people have listened. And and I think that's that's been really exciting about this project is that, you know, we, we obviously stand on the shoulders of so many people who have been doing this work for so long. Um, but to be able to be uh, the people that get to put this in front of uh, these, you know, gatekeepers, uh, I think has been really important for us. Yeah, I, I just want to read some of these stats because I think they're just uh, so eye opening. So less than 10% of the 200 films studied have featured one Muslim character speaking on the screen that they also found uh, that only uh, seven Muslim characters uh, were children, um, and then also less than two percent of the more than eighty five hundred speaking characters were Muslim. Um, what does that say to you about Hollywood and 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 what needs to happen? I mean, I think it it says to me is that they're completely out of touch. You know, uh, you know, Muslims are not a small portion of the world's population. And so the fact that, A, the representation is so low, I think it tells you two things. One is that we're an afterthought. We're not really thought of when when creating film and television. Um, and the second is that the education or the understanding of who our communities are is so much more limited than I think we could have ever even imagined. The fact that people don't recognize that a, a huge portion of Muslims in America are Black And really the experience of Islam in America has shaped, uh, has been shaped by black Muslim communities. Um, You know, the, the fact that these stories have been erased from popular narratives um, that's, I think what this tells you is that they just are so out of touch and don't have a clue. And it's kind of going to require us to push and push and push to rectify this. And, you know, I think we will, and I think we're working towards that goal, but I do think there is, you know, when, when you talk about, when you ask me about how I react to it, it's, 
it's disheartening. I mean, there's no other way to react to it is that popular culture shapes the way that we view the world. You know, I, I was a, 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 a kid from in growing up in Ohio you know, watching MTV every day and, and was, you know, wanting so badly to see someone that looked like me on screen. And I, I, I never saw it. You know, Riz talked <clears throat> a lot about um, what he, he did a lot of press, you know, for this, you know, research. And, and you know, he, he so smartly brought up that even a movie like Black Panther, which we all love, we thought was phenomenal and was progressive and incredible go watch, you know, the beginning of Black Panther. A Muslim shows up once on screen and it's to kidnap a bunch of, you know, school children. So, oh, you know, I, I, so I think there's a lot of work to be done, you know, even in progressive communities. And, and so I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that for us, that's kind of what the research shows is that we, we really have a long ways to go. Yeah. What I love about the, the fact that you guys not only did this study, but then Pillars Fund also launched the blueprint for Muslim inclusion. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, we're really excited about that. I think that for us, you know, being an organization that supports and uplifts Muslim communities, we weren't terribly interested in research for the sake of research. I think that this really only made sense to when we knew when the data was going to come out, it was going to sort of shock a lot of people. Um, and we really wanted to put some action towards it. And so we kind of did two things. I think one, you know, we, we've been working in the industry in, in, in Hollywood for a couple of years to really kind of um, bring a lot of these issues to people's attention. And so the blueprint, I think, was a really important thing that I have to give um, a lot of credit to my colleague, Arij Makati, at the Pillars Fund. She's our managing director of culture change, who's really been just so such an amazing leader in this organization and, and, and so much props to her for all of her hard work on this. But really what we did was that we kind of put a challenge in front of people. We said, A, you know, we need to sunset terror tropes because terror tropes, as we know, are not just tired and problematic, they're harmful. They're incredibly harmful. When you consistently associate Muslims with violence and terror, it has real life implications. I mean, honestly, like it was one of the most tragic things in the world is that the week that this research was coming out was when that family was murdered in um, Canada, sure. oh, uh, Pakistani Muslim family, simply for being Muslim. You know, so, you know, these things are not not connected. These things are very, very interconnected. And so for us, it's a challenge to put in front of studios and say they need to sunset terror tropes because they're very harmful. Um, and the second is actually getting behind and supporting Muslim artists. And, you know, uh, Amazon and others do this really great thing where they they offer Muslim creators a first look deal where it gives them resources to be able to do their own projects. And we've seen in the last couple of years that Riz Ahmed and Rami Youssef have been able to secure those types of deals. And we're really pushing um, to get more Muslims with those types of deals, particularly more Muslim women, black Muslims, uh, Muslims that are not often uh, represented. And so we've, you know, the, the blueprint for Muslim inclusion is really meant to kind of push um, all of these studios to kind of take a stronger look at what their representation of Muslims look like in screen uh, and on screen and behind uh, behind the scene as well. Yeah. And you give a deadline for it. You said the next 18 months, you want to see the sunsetting of the terror tropes and you want to see, um, you know, these production companies or houses securing a deal with at least one Muslim creator. Why, why the 18 months? 
Well, I think that, you know, the problem is, is that, you know, like there's some things that you can do tomorrow and there's some things that take a little bit longer to do. And I think that we want the commitment to be sooner than the 18 months. But we recognize that, you know, sort of, you know, what that means for studios, everyone sort of works at different paces and schedules. And we use the word sunsetting purposefully because, you know, if there is a problematic television show, you know, we know that you can't just like, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. And so I think for us, it's a matter of holding people accountable. It's a matter of creating, um, it's really about creating tangible deadlines and, and tangible goals. Um, because right now we're living in an era where Hollywood and other sort of industries talk a really big game. They talk a really, really big game. You know, they, they, they have all the commercials and they say all the right things, but you really have to put action to that. And that's the role that I really uh, see us playing is holding these people accountable for, you know, to do what they say they're going to do. And we want to be more inclusive of Muslim communities. And um, I'm optimistic that I think we can get there. We're going to take a quick break. Up next, Kashif tells us about his love for music and professional wrestling. This is American Muslim Project. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Kasif Sheikh, co-founder and president of Pillars Fund, a nonprofit that supports Muslim organizations and leaders who are advancing social good. Recently, Pillars announced the Blueprint for Muslim Inclusion, which tells film industry professionals how to support Muslim stories and storytellers. I asked him how it's been received by the industry so far. Dude, the response has been amazing. I, I, you know, it's funny because we get asked this question a lot. It's like, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Are you, you know, what's sort of your temperature? And, you know, Riz has this really, really great line that he says. He says, I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I'm determined. And I love that line because I think it's very, very true. And I will say that the response to this has been really powerful. Like, I have been shocked at the amount of people who have reached out to us who want to meet with us, who are kind of being shamed for this. Because, you know, we, we say a lot about, we say this to a lot of people where if you're not doing this, if you're not willing to sign on to the visibility challenge or the blueprint, if you're not willing to to do all of this work, what does it say about you? Yeah, right. And, and I, I think that, you know, we're living in this era where people don't want to be uh, maligned on, on Twitter and they don't want to be sort of seen as problematic and, and yet they're not always willing to take the right steps to do so. And so I think that's where we come in and I think we can help uh, and really sort of usher in this change. But I will say that the reaction has been very positive from 
studios to individual actors to actresses to you know who influencers um the feedback has just been really positive no i mean it's it's amazing and and i i just again want to compliment you on the comprehensiveness of the approach i mean you have solutions for you know not only production companies and and agencies but also the festivals unions and then philanthropists how important is it for for the people with the money <laughs> to to sign up for uh, to get on board with this, I mean it's the most important, right? I mean I think that when you look at how whether it be films or television shows or foundations or whatever it might be, when you look at how you know what's really powering them, um, it's typically sort of big money donors, philanthropists, etc. And so um, you really kind of have to start at the source, and so that's really what we were trying to do with all of this is to not just offer sort of surface level solutions and say, hey, you have to do this. It's really also build the deep relationships that are important to be able to actually then influence and create that change that we're talking about. And that's what I'm just the most excited about is, you know, we absolutely plan to hold people accountable. We absolutely plan to go back to everyone and say, hey, it was fun when, you know, we we're all in the news and everyone was, it was all like shiny and sexy. Um, but where are we now? Like, what what are you doing against these goals that we've discussed? And so I think for us, that is going to be a really, really critical part of this is holding every part of the industry accountable. And, you know, and that's what we plan to do. Yeah. I, I guess, what does it look like in, in 18 months? What I, Like, are you hoping that X amount of production companies will have signed the 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 um, commitment, or what? What is that? Yeah. What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, we're in conversations that we we certainly hope and, and are optimistic that a couple of the big big studios will sort of sign on to the challenge and, and really kind of commit to it. We've already been having those conversations and have been really positive, and, and we're excited about that. Uh, the other thing that we you know we we haven't talked that much about, which. Uh, I'm sure you were going to bring up is is the artist fellowship, the pillars oh, artist right. fellowship yes, yes. that we're going to be launching alongside, because that's also going to be a solution. So you know, in 18 months, part of the thing, you know, what we're really trying to eliminate and avoid is that people coming to us and saying, "Hey, we tried to hire Muslims, but we don't know any Muslims, or we don't know any, you know, Muslim, you know, actors or costume designers or whatever it might be." And so you know, we launched this fellowship to support and build. Uh, a pipeline of, you know, Muslims in front of and behind the screen to, right. to really be able to get them where they need to get to. And so I think that will also be a really critical part in this. I mean, you know, we, this is a multi-year effort. It's being led by Pillars and Riz Ahmed and uh, his production company, Left Handed, who have just been nothing but uh, amazing partners. And I think that what the world looks like in 18 months, the world that we're envisioning looks like in 18 months is, you know, more Muslims in the world, more Muslims in, in positions of power, more Muslims in uh, visible roles. And, you know, we're not going to let up until that happens. And, and more Muslims with discretionary uh, money <laughs> to spend yeah, on. More, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. For, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, we want to put our money where our mouth is as well is, is because, you know, these things cost money to make. And, and I think one thing I, you know, so one thing about me is that I grew up, you know, the, the son of an artist, my dad came to America to go to art school. He went to Pratt in the U S and New York. I grew up around music. I grew up around art. I grew up around all of these things. And so I've always had this love in my heart for artists. And I think they're often one of the most overlooked and neglected part of society. And, you know, they provide us with such joy 
and we don't often do enough to support them. And so what this fellowship is really aiming to do is not only, you know, provide them mentorship and leadership and get them in front of the people they need to get in front of, but it's also to give them money, to give them grants and let them do whatever it is that they want to do with it. Our, we are not going to be prescriptive with it. Our, our goal is not to say to an artist, like, hey, go make a movie. Our goal is to say to this artist, what do you need in order to make that movie? Do you need a grant to, to pay your rent? Okay, great. Then pay your rent. Totally hear you on that. So that's really what we're hoping this fellowship does. And it, it is really unique. And we're, we're pretty excited about it. Amazing. Um, I want to just transition a little bit to uh, you and your upbringing. You mentioned that you grew up in Ohio and some son of immigrants. Um, talk to me about why you decided to go down this path for your career. I imagine you could have done anything, but why did you choose philanthropy and, and nonprofit leadership? Um, you know, I, I talked a little bit about my dad. My dad was a really big influence in my life. He, you know, I, you know, grew up in a house. I grew up in a sort of, you know, none of my friends' dads, you know, they were all kind of doing stuff that was pretty sort of traditional and normal, like, you know, law or medicine or whatever it might be. And, and I kind of had this like weird artist dad who like, you know, um, you know, ended up did having a corporate job for 30 years where he worked in packaging design and, and did really well there. Um, but was like always like a bit of a weirdo, which I loved about my dad a lot. Like I remember when I was a kid and I got very into music, I, I remember how excited he got. Like he would like, I, I, I would get these CDs and, and he would like, he, he would go and take me to the record store. And, and it was really cool for him to see me getting into music because he was a huge music fan. Part of it was, you know, I, I, I had this sort of upbringing in which um, I kind of saw that. And, and then I fell into activism at a pretty young age, you know, partly through music. I'm 38. And so I um, kind of grew up in this like really cool era where, you know, I, you know, when the first Green Day album came out in like 93, right. I was obsessed with it. And, and it also introduced me to this world of like punk rock, which was like really heavily influenced by activism. And so I started listening to these bands that were talking about everything from veganism to uh, gay rights to, you know, whatever it might be. And, and it just like opened up my world uh, so, so profoundly. And, you know, from a young age, from 15 to 16, I, you know, just kind of knew that I wanted to pursue something that had some type of sort of social value and I started volunteering and, and started kind of getting involved in a lot of different things like that, which then led me to college. And then post-college, I, you know, I was kind of a lost 22-year-old that didn't quite know what he wanted to do um, and was very lucky to have met, you know, someone who kind of guided me towards, you know, a couple of internships in the nonprofit sector, which then just kind of, you know, 15 years later is like turned into this entire career. So I owe a lot of people... Uh, so much, but it, it was really kind of me being determined to to do something that I was a really really passionate about, um, which wasn't always really popular because you know I was an English major and and like no one really understood what that meant and, and you know <laughs> frankly I mean I don't quite know what it means either but um, but I, I I was always a little bit of a of an outcast and so I you know, it just kind of fell into a lot of this work. And I've just been so lucky along the way to have found and been mentored by and supported by just some of the best people in the world. 
Yeah. Well, I just following up on that, an outcast because of your interests, um, because you like I, punk music or because you're Muslim, Pakistani? I mean, I, you know, I think it was like a combination of all of that stuff. I, I was like, you know, I grew up in a pretty white suburb of Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, I, you know, my parents got divorced at a young age. And so like we weren't really a part of a any type of like traditional Muslim community. I mean, we knew a lot of people. We knew all the Muslims in town. But my parents kind of were also both like introverts and, and didn't have a lot of friends and kind of kept to themselves. And, and so I, I just didn't grow up in, in sort of traditional communities. And so I kind of, it was always like a weird upbringing in the sense that, you know, in school, like with all my activist and like weirdo artist friends who are all white, I kind of felt like kind of at home with them a little bit because I was, you know, I kind of had the shared interests, but I felt so culturally disconnected from them. Uh, and then when I got to college, you know, when I started to hang out and, and become friends with a lot more Muslims, they, they didn't they weren't always the same activist types. And so I, I just really struggled with kind of finding my people, which, you know, I think Pillars has been the greatest blessing in my life is that, you know, it's 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 been something that has, you know, I always thought that I did Pillars because I was like, I want to give back to this community and I want to give back to Muslims and I want to like do something for this community that I grew up in. But ultimately what I realized a couple of years ago that it's actually been a pretty selfish endeavor. It's it's really <laughs> been the the community, the Muslims who I've met that have given so much more to me that I could ever give to them. I, I kind of found my people through doing this. And so, you know, in terms of feeling like an outcast, it was just kind of, you know, it's, it's not a terribly unique story of sort of being a brown kid in a white suburb and wondering and, and, and figuring, trying to figure out what your identities are. So it's, it's, it was, it was a strange way, but you know, I, I, I guess I, I did something right. Cause I'm, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, one question I like to ask a lot of my guests is, do you have a uniquely American Muslim experience that you want to share? Uh, I mean, it's funny, right? Do I have a uniquely American? I mean, I, I'd say probably, you know, like to me and it's like, as I get older, I've met more of these people, but like, you know, I, I was this kid. I mean, music is my life. Like I grew up oh, just obsessed with music and, and I grew up going in high school, going to shows. Like that's what we did every Friday and Saturday night. We just went to concerts. We went to small little like venues on the North side of Cincinnati to sort of some of the bigger uh, venues. And it's kind of where I spent so much of my formative time. And I'll tell you, like, it's fascinating because I didn't, I wanted so desperately in those moments to kind of feel connected to other Muslims so much so that I tell the story a lot because it cracks me up and it's like so ridiculous and silly was that I remember I was at my mom's apartment once and you know, like this was like maybe 98 or 99 or something like this. And, and like that band, some 41 came on television and they had a Brown guitarist Oh yeah, of course, and yeah. it blew my mind. I was so, this was like kind of the pre internet type of thing. So you couldn't just Google everything about this guy, but I always joke that like, I need to meet this guy because he like blew my mind. I was, he wasn't even Muslim, but like, I was just like, what? Like that is a thing, like you can do that. And so, so I think that for me, it's like, you know, being at these shows and, and uh, you know, li li being in this sort of like, I've always been, I've always been kind of attracted to sort of subgenres or like little niche communities. And so like, whether it be like punk rock, whether it be like professional wrestling, like all these like dumb little <laughs> things, like I love this shit. It's so cool to me. And I was just like kind of a, like a kid who was like obsessed with like music and wrestling and pizza and, and just kind of like hung out in Cincinnati and, and was trying to like figure out, you know, and, and, you know, and then I got introduced, it was such a hilarious thing because then I got introduced to like 
Jack Kerouac when I was like 18 and was like, Oh my God, like I want to like take a road trip. And, <laughs> and like, you know, like on the road was like, you know, the book for me. And it's funny because it, <laughs> like, I don't know if it was unique, but it was definitely weird uh, for sure. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to reflect back on. Yeah. I mean, honestly, to me, this speaks to, you know, I think your experience is very similar to mine. I think we're, you know, a couple of years apart, but similarly, you know, I like music and <laughs> like wrestling and, and all this stuff. And, and I think this going back to the earlier part of the conversation, the, these stories aren't told on the screen, right? We didn't see people like us. We don't see people like us on the screen that had gone through that experience or whatever to show us that this was normal. This could be normal, or this is a, an experience that an American Muslim could have or has had or, or whatnot. So, Oh yeah, totally. Um, and I love how you threw just in there, how you love wrestling, because if that's the case, we're going to be like best friends because <laughs> I, 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 uh, I loved wrestling, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Most people grow out of it. I did not. So, um, so that's a, uh, that's a fun fact about me. Is that Wasn't there you, like you, a, a Muslim wrestler that just came about or, or something? Yeah, there's a few of them. They're fantastic. There's, there's this guy named, uh, uh, Mustafa Ali, who who is this really great guy from Chicago, who I've gotten to know his name. You know, he's, his real name is Adil Alam. Great guy. I've gotten to know him. There's this guy named Sami Zayn, who's doing some of the best stuff like ever, like who he who's like the Syrian Arab. But like he's like just really flipped all these stereotypes because, like, you know, wrestling was like the worst about oh, the worst. representation and, and 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 and, you know, it was like just straight up racist. Oh, for and sure. um, it's been cool to kind of see it now where, you know, you have someone like Sami Zayn, who, who's like, again, he's like a he's from Montreal, I believe, and like a, a, a Syrian guy. And, and he's just doing this like hilarious, like little I don't know, I could get into it, but it's he's just he's not he's not playing into the stereotypes. And so I think you're just seeing so much more of that. That's that's really fun. Oh, that's awesome. Um, uh, Kasaf Sheikh, thanks so much for joining American Muslim Project. This has been a, a fantastic conversation. Thank you for having me. This was fun. My conversation with Kasaf Sheikh was recorded in June of 2021. We'll have links to the Pillars Fund and the study and the blueprint and everything else that we talked about in our show notes. Thanks again for listening. If you liked what you heard, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. American Muslim Project is a production of Rathelion Media. Today's show was produced and edited by Mark Inato, Lindsay Gamble, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson did our theme. We are online at AmericanMuslimProject.com. So I I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. So I I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. So I I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, 
I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me, because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.